0: and so is a great story. Welcome to the Kiwi Foodcast, the show where we sit down with chefs, food businesses, food writers and more to share the stories behind the food they serve. I'm your host, Persin Patel, and this show is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Let's dig in, everyone. Welcome back, everyone. Today on the show, we have Isabel of Bread and Butter Bakery. Bread and Butter are a Ponsonby based bakery and cafe that specialize in traditional European and naturally leavened sourdough bread. At Isabel's bakery, food is made according to traditional recipes and there is no pre mix or ready to use filling to be found. Curiously, Isabel's background is not in food. She is a trained microbiologist and prior to the bakery, had a company where they specialized in science PR. I didn't even know that was a thing. When she was looking for a career change, she realized she missed the amazing bread she had grown up with in Germany and decided to start a bakery. The rest, as they say, is history, or in Isabel's case, sourdough. So without further ado, let's begin. Hi, Isabel. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So let's start at the very beginning. A question I like to ask all my guests is um, to find out a little bit about your childhood. Like, how was it like growing up in Germany?
1: Well, I'm a child of the seventies, um, so <laughs> quite a different time from now, I guess. But um, I um, grew up in a very female-dominated household. My mm-hmm. mum. Um, we we lived near um, my great mum's family and um, we often went um, to my grandmother's on and that's actually sort of one of my earliest food memories is at my grandmother's on Saturday afternoon and my mum had um, sisters, two sisters and um, a brother and all the women would bring cake and my grandmother would bake cake and there would be like four different cakes or so Ooh. and it would be totally acceptable to have four pieces of cake. <laughs> exactly,
0: There's no such thing as too much cake, right? Like, thank Not you. in our family, no. <laughs> and
1: um yeah so that's sort of one of my earliest memories and then when we when i was 7 we moved away um but my mum always kept up the tradition we we always had cake in our house um we didn't my mum didn't buy sweets and we never had sugary drinks or anything like that but there was always some form of baking slice cake biscuits something Mm. and um and that's something that I picked up from a young age and my sister is an even more prolific baker than me um so um yeah so that that side has always run very strongly in my family and um And I guess being German, um, Germans eat a lot of bread. And Germany has actually, um, German's bread culture has been recognised as a UNESCO World Heritage and is actually protected under that World Heritage, you know, culture um, sort of thing. And um, there's lots, I think there's over 500 recognised different bread varieties in Germany. So bread bread is very... Front and center of German culture. Yeah.
0: Okay. That, I mean, I really didn't know that. That's quite fascinating, actually. <laughs> so you don't really have like a traditional food background, right? You're actually a scientist. Yes. I. Um, yeah. I. I've food. I've just like
1: eating food, but I have no I have no formal training in food. Um, I studied biology first as an undergrad and then did a master's in microbiology, and um, I did that here in New Zealand. So I came to New Zealand to do the master's here and fell in love with the country, absolutely loved it. And I did – my work on a uh, sort of bit very uh, on the gut of fish or the microbiology in the gut of fish but because there was very little known about that
0: mm-hmm. what
1: I actually had to read for my research was um, basically other research that had been done on humans and on ruminants and you know other animals to learn about what happens in the gut and so um, that's where I sort of got quite a good understanding I guess about nutrition and digestion and and all of that from, and I—I um, I actually wanted to become a scientist. I went on to do a PhD, but halfway through the PhD, I had a bit of an epiphany and decided that I was not enjoying it enough, and I wasn't good enough at it to be a real fantastic scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I—I I dropped out, and um, but I really—I was—I guess what I was really interested in is. Um, really understanding how the world works and then trying to use that understanding to make things better. Um, So I decided to go into science journalism in order to, you know, bring scientific understanding to more people. And that's what I did in Germany until um, my husband and I decided to move to New Zealand for our children. And then was really when I uh, made the really big career change to, run a bakery.
0: Okay, so you were studying in New Zealand and then your husband and you moved to Germany. Yes. And then you guys came back when you had kids. Yeah, about 10 years okay. later, yep. Yeah. Okay, so kind of like my story, like I was living here and then I moved back to India and then I came back when I, <laughs> once I had kids. So I must agree, New Zealand is a great place to grow up, kids, right?
1: Oh, yes. I mean, the schools are great, the, you know, the outdoors are great. It's a, it's a very, very wonderful country here. We're very privileged here, I feel.
0: So how did you actually make the shift then from microbiology to bread baking?
1: Well, when I had my second child, um, we had sort of made the decision to move to New Zealand. This was still back in Germany. And I I gave up the science journalism. Uh, I sold my part in the company that I owned. And... um, I then worked at a friend's bakery who – so a friend of mine had, um, by New Zealand standards, fairly large organic bakery in Berlin, um, and he'd been running that since the early 90s. And um, he gave me the opportunity to basically – I worked for free for about half a year in various different departments, just sort of learning everything about bakery. And then I came to New Zealand and I bought a small bakery, um, and I – I've always employed professional bread bakers because I recognize that I do not have the skills. It's bread baking is a real skill science experience and it's very hard work and I recognized that I wouldn't be able to do that myself not to the standard that I wanted it Um, but initially I did all the pastry baking because that's sort of something I had done my whole life Um, cakes and pastries and I felt that um, I, I felt more confident in doing that myself so that's what I did initially for the first three years or so Okay. So it was one, one bread baker, me as the pastry chef <laughs> and um, and then I always had somebody in the shop but initially it was a very small bakery of basically an outfit of three plus some weekend students.
0: Okay, wow, that must have been a lot of hard work. I know um, one of the reasons I didn't want to get into bakery was because you have to wake up at like three in the morning. Yes,
1: yeah, unfortunately <laughs> that's one of the features of bakery, yeah.
0: so uh, since you're a baker and everyone and their cousin is now making sourdough can you tell us a little bit about sourdough and why it's so good for you like since you guys specialize in that kind of bread yes so basically uh, grains um, most
1: grains are not so easily digestible for us Um, they have complex starches and um, uh, cellulose from the husk, which contain a lot of nutrients that we need, but we, ha- we have trouble digesting them ourselves. Um, so we need bacteria to break that um, down because bacteria have certain enzymes that we don't have, for example, to break down cellulose. And um, if you ferment it, um, if you don't ferment it in a sourdough, if if you just ferment it by yeast, yeast, uh, all, all Sourdoughs contain yeast, and um, but the yeasts only basically break down the sugars to produce carbon dioxide. They don't touch the complex carbohydrates. So what mm-hmm. happens? Uh, uh, you don't break it down in the, in the dough. Then the bacteria in your stomach, in your hind gut, will start doing that. But it will give you indigestion. You will feel bloated, and that's what a lot of people report. Right from from eating supermarket bread, they go, "Oh, I don't, you know, I feel bloated. It's not good for me. Mm-hmm. It's gluten. It's not. It's not." the gluten that makes you feel bloated it's the unfermented grains that make you feel bloated and traditionally for about ten years and that's about how long we've been eating bread um, that's always been done with a slow fermented sourdough and um, it's only in the last sort of 50 years or so that we've done away with the sourdough fermentation uh, because everything now needs to be done very fast and very cheap and you know um, and um, and that's when all those intolerances have started cropping up so sourdough is in 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 a nutshell it's a wild uh, mixture of sourdough bacteria which are lactic acid bacteria those are the same that do yogurt fermentation or sauerkraut or kimchi or you know any number Mm. of fermented wild foods um, and wild yeast and together they they break down they leave in the bread, they put air into it, which is carbon dioxide from their basically their um, metabolic activity. They breathe it out just like we do. Uh, that leavens the dough, and um, but also in the process, because there's lots of different groups of them, they break down different parts of the carbohydrates. And again, they work on, on gluten and other things um, in, in the dough as well. And they work on fermentation products from other bacteria that they broke break down first and, and together you get like this complex mix of different types of acids and byproducts that then flavor the dough and make it more digestible.
0: Mm. I mean that's what I love that kind of sour tinge of the bread um, you know like it tastes like no other bread <laughs> I love yeah. sourdough. <laughs> yeah well and,
1: and, and they can all taste very different and you can actually Um, manipulate sourdough in lots of different ways um, by changing the temperature, by changing how much water you're using, by adding, you know, two different types of flour, by using a little bit more wholemeal. Um, There are all sorts of ways how you can manipulate sourdough and how you can manipulate the flavor because if you do vary those conditions, you favor one type of bacteria in the mixture over others and you get slightly different flavor profiles. So good bakers can really Mm. manipulate that.
0: So that's where when you see on Instagram someone's going on about 60% hydration and then someone's saying 95% hydration, that's what they're talking about. Yes, <laughs>
1: yes. Well, that, that, that's um, the the um, best way to understand bread is um, to really break it down to the um, relationship of flour to water. And that's the yeah. easiest way to physically measure what's going on in the bread. So if somebody says I've got a 60% hydration bread and somebody says I've got a 90% hydration bread, those two braids are not really comparable you know you can't really access them with the same parameters um you're going to get something very different um, because the physics and and, and the chemistry in those braids is different
0: Mm. i mean that's so fascinating and i think that's why because of the fact that there's so much science involved i always feel like if you're a good cook you're not um definitely like not a good baker. <laughs> no,
1: it's not the
0: same, no. It's, because it's, cooking is so much of, I feel like, of the senses, at least yes. the Indian way of cooking is, yeah. where it's like, there's no set recipe, really. Yeah,
1: totally. You, you When you're cooking, you've got the ability to sort of taste and add a little bit more and taste it again and add a little bit more. You can't do that with bread. With bread, it's very science. Like you've And when, when I teach people um, bread baking, I always say the first thing you want to get is a notebook, so you write everything down and a thermometer <laughs> And a pair of scales. Don't work with cups and and, and volumetric because it's terribly inaccurate. And um, you need the thermometer because it is the easiest way to tell you what's going on in your dough. By knowing the temperature of the water, by knowing the temperature of the dough, you can make so many predictions about how your dough is going to go. And together, that with the information of how hydrated your dough is, you can calculate pretty precisely what's going to happen. But if you don't have any of those. Um, information points you're just guessing and then you you can get widely different results and that's what most people at home do and then they're scratching their heads and going why why did I produce this flat pancake
0: (laughs) that would be me most of the time (laughs) clearly I need to come to one of your classes um and what what role does altitude play because sometimes I've seen people talk about um you know, the fact or the other day I read where someone was saying that you should start making your sourdough kind of like later in the afternoon. So what factor is like kind of the well, time of day or altitude, does that is that actually a thing or not really?
1: Well, I've never really thought much about altitude. I suppose if you go very high up, it will probably change things. You know, if you were a baker up in the Himalayas or something, um, I would expect, because water, for example, boils at lower temperatures. So I would Mm. expect that um, the low pressure at low altitude will also affect the rising of a dough for example right mm. um so you, so you it might might get more bubbly or something at, at higher altitude but i'm I'm just guessing about that but, but the time of the fine. day that you start your starter doesn't matter so much it just matters when you want to bake um okay. you know yeah. so depending on if you want to bake in the morning or in the evening or if you do an overnight ferment or if you do two-stage sourdough or three-stage sourdough there's so many different ways there's no there's no fixed way of how you make a sourdough there's probably hundreds of thousands of different ones and if you think that this is a technique that's 10,000 years old um, mm. yeah, it's probably an innumerable amount of different ways you can make sourdough.
0: Cool so then how exactly did bread end up getting such a bad reputation? Well I think it's because
1: we've we have Lost the slow ferment because in in the nineteen fifties or early sixties, um, the a, a bunch of scientists or food technologists in Britain invented what is called the Chorleywood process, and it is basically the industrial bread production process. They added a bunch of hard fats and sugar and fast-acting yeast and Mm. some stabilizers and dough conditioners, and they found that they can make bread in under two hours. So that's from bag to back in the bag, baked, sliced, and bagged up again in in under two hours. And that really revolutionized bread baking because – now they could make these huge factories that really quickly churned out this product at really low prices, and that combined with the so-called green revolution, um, which is basically the application of synthetic fertilizer to certain um, mainly uh, grain crops, um, that made the price of wheat really low. That basically delivered the one dollar loaf, and um, and that's like I said before, that's it's actually really bad. I always say the the one dollar white sliced loaf of bread is as much bread as Fanta is an orange. You know, mm. it's, it's orange. Uh, it, like Fanta is orange, like an orange, but there's no orange juice in there. There's nothing, you know, actually yeah. orange. And same with white sliced bread. Yes, there are some carbs in there, but it has nothing to do with a sourdough. A sourdough is. Um, Pretty much, a whole meal sourdough is pretty much the only food um, that you can live off exclusively that and water. It contains all the nutrients you need. And that's, you know. Yeah in europe traditionally i don't know um if if it was like that in india as well i don't know what they fed prisoners but back in the olden days when they threw prisoners into some dark dingy hole um and they only fed them bread and water And but they you know people could live off bread and water because back then all the bread was wholemeal and all the bread was sourdough and it probably and it was all organic because that's all they had so you know there were no nasty chemicals or anything and you could actually live off that probably not very well um, because of the other conditions in there. But um, nevertheless, wholemeal sourdough is something that you can live off Um for a very long time without needing anything else because it contains everything. But white bread is just empty calories and there's no nutritional value in it at all. And if people eat it for long enough, they will get sick and they can start feeling that. And that's where the bad reputation comes from because it's not really bread. It shouldn't really be called bread in my opinion.
0: (laughs) Well, it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, once you've, I think, even just baked the most simplest of breads, like I'm not talking sourdough, but even if you try to bake white bread at home, it tastes so radically different from what you get in the supermarket. Absolutely, yes. Because at home, you wouldn't put in
1: all those chemicals that are just there to puff it up, to stabilize it, to make it look like something it doesn't, to make it fresh like you know stay fresh for two weeks and like you don't put any of that in when you bake bread at home if you bake a white loaf of bread at home and you leave it sitting on the counter for two or three days it'll be fairly dry and you you know that's because that's what bread does it just dries out and you know it's it's a food that traditionally has always been made you know every day people made it fresh every day and i'm i'm sure i mean in india you make bread for every
0: meal right yeah, that's true. I mean we we most of us have roti and not, yes. not bread. Yeah, not, so not mainly bread, wheat. It? Yeah, yeah. It's mainly unleavened. Yes. But um yeah, I mean most families I mean now I guess we have like leftover rotis. but before that that was like a big kinda no no. Mm. And at least never for the man of the family. <laughs> Always fresh rotis for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah but and in fact, we have so many recipes to use up the stale rotis as mm. well, because you can't use them. You'd never actually have it with your meal, but you'd cut it up and put it into something. Yes. The same way how you'd use up your breadcrumbs yes. or whatever. Yes. Yeah, no.
1: And, and, and same in Europe. Like, you know, until the late 19th century, I think 80% of calories that people had um, in a day came from bread. So they had mostly bread with a little bit of meat and a little bit of vegetables on the side, Um, but most of their calories came from bread.
0: Yeah, I know. I think that's why we find it so hard nowadays when someone says, okay, just like don't have bread. Like, I don't know, as an Indian, I'm just like, I can't do this. I- like, <laughs> all my food requires me to eat bread. Like, what will I eat if I don't eat bread? It's just like all gravy and soupy then. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, same as a German. It's very difficult to to conceive. Like, when people tell me, I oh, don't eat bread, I just go like, oh, you poor thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I was binging on your blog, which I love the name Bread Politics, um, and it says there that when you started, you were really disappointed with the state of bread in New Zealand. So can you tell us why that's the case? Like, I mean, well, having come from when I media, yeah, sorry,
1: no, when when I first came here to study, um, there was. Practically no artisan bakeries. It really has changed in the last sort of ten or fifteen years. Um, there has been a huge increase in small bakeries that bake really good bread. But um, and I came here in 1999, and there was there was Pandora Bakery in Parnell, which was a tiny little shop, and there was a German bakery in Mount Eden where I'd occasionally go and buy a loaf of bread, but I didn't live there. So, but in outside of those two, I wasn't aware of any anything else um and um so when I decided and my husband and I we came back to New Zealand in 2010 um I um I said oh my god I'm gonna I'm gonna die of not having decent bread (laughs) so I I thought I'd start my own bakery
0: hmm and like nowadays you said that you know like the state of bread has changed um and now i know we see in the supermarkets bread that claims to be like yeast free but is that Mm. like i mean is that really happening is that marketing spin (laughs) it doesn't
1: feel like it could be (laughs) no it's that's actually not true that is like the only Yeast-free bread that I know of is either unleavened bread um, mm. or uh, in Ireland you get these, um, they're called soda fowls, which are basically like kind of like a scone or something, you know, they're, they're leaving with baking powder. Those breads yeah. are yeast-free. But sourdoughs always contain yeast. They, mm. It's Like I said, it's a wild mix of bacteria and yeasts. Um So that's very misleading and we we encounter that quite often that people come into the bakery and ask for a yeast-free bread or they ask, does your sourdough contain yeast? And we say, yes, it does. And in a bakery like ours, a commercial bakery where we also use just baker's yeast, although we only use fresh yeast, we don't use the active dry yeast, um, the... You know, we use it in croissants and and brioche and um, danishes and all sorts of things. Um, but uh, that yeast, well, that baker's yeast is also very active, and it will spread throughout the whole bakery. It's airborne. All, all yeast, like there, yeast everywhere. Yeast and bacteria are. Everywhere they cover every little surface bit on the planet, and um, you, you can take a, a you know a swab sample from anywhere, and you will find yeasts. And um, so so sourdoughs absolutely contain yeasts.
0: Okay, and. So moving on from that, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, you were saying that when you started in 2010, So it's been about 10 years since you started. And of course, now people have more knowledge about artisan bakeries and things like that. But how was it for you in those early days when you like started making your own bread? Like, um, maybe could you tell us how, how those early days were like and how you grew and, you know? took on customer feedback
1: and yeah yeah so um my very first bakery was called Paris Berlin Bakery and it was in Ellerslie and it was um fortunate enough to be right behind the Steiner School in Ellerslie and Mm -hmm. um I guess the Steiner community is a very sort of um holistic oriented um community so they're very often into organics and all of that anyway so I guess that that was fortunate to have um that connection and customer base there um and they had a good understanding of it already so that was sort of one one side um which was very encouraging to you know have customers that appreciated and knew what I was on about. Um, But there was also um, obviously people who just never heard of sourdough and what is it? And, oh, that tastes strange. And, oh, that's heavy. And, you know, we had a lot of that and um, we've always, or I've always enjoyed doing farmer's markets. So right from the start, we've always been at farmer's markets and, um, that I found always very satisfying because the people that shop at farmer's markets um, are very inquisitive and want to know and really look for that conversation. So we always try and educate our customers about what sourdough is and what the benefits of it are. and um, That's always been, for me, a huge part of why I do this because I do want to bring better bread to people you know make people's lives better through bread I guess
0: yeah (laughs) and I noticed that I mean even though you guys have grown so much you continue to sell at those markets so is that because you want to just continue doing that education piece or um yes
1: yes and no I mean one one side is because um we we enjoy doing that um and I also hugely believe in local food networks I think farmers markets are fantastic fantastic not only for us um, but they are also very good for um, you know local growers and artisan producers and they are great value because um, you as a, as a um, customer you buy directly from the producer which cuts out all the middlemen so you, the money goes straight to the person who's produced, it, which is good for the producer and you as a customer get the full value of it while if you buy at the supermarket, the majority of the value goes into the into the supply chain and you you know and that's money as a consumer that you pay for um but you don't you don't get the full value of it so you get much better quality and I, I really enjoy it I like the atmosphere I like the customers and actually for us as bakery it's very profitable not in a sense well in, in, in a sense that we can move a lot of product we move more product through a farmer's market in four hours on a Sunday morning then we move through one of our stores uh, like the smaller stores in a whole
0: week sometimes oh, okay hmm. yeah I guess because people come also to the farmer's market with that intention you know like You want to buy, like, good, wholesome kind of food that will keep you going for the rest of the week. Yes, and
1: that's right. A lot of people that shop at farmer's markets, they go to farmer's markets because they have understood that value that they're getting there and they don't – once they've sort of hooked on that, they don't want to go back to supermarket produce. So they make a point of doing their entire shopping at the farmer's market or as much of it as they can and um, they will buy their entire week's worth. So, yes, they they buy it, you know, with – plenty of customers who buy two or three loaves of bread from us every weekend and they only buy our bread they say i I never touch the supermarket stuff and they will do the same for you know their fish and their meat and their vegetables they they all buy that at the farmer's market and they come religiously you can you know you always know oh yep must be quarter past nine here's bob (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) so it's and it's lovely that community is is that community that a farmers market provides is just wonderful. Um it's so important and I feel I I don't know what you feel like um here it's it's weird like I'm I, I'm from Berlin. It's a big city, right? But in in yeah. Berlin uh people don't have gardens and people don't have cars. Um people go to the park to be outdoors and because you live in apartment blocks you sort of know everyone in your apartment block and in Germany um, everybody has their names on their um, mailboxes, which are down in the, you know, like you come into the house and in in the ground floor, there's all the mailboxes. So, you know, everyone in your house and, um, you talk to them and then because you don't have a car, you walk everywhere and you, because you go to the park when I, when my kids were little, you know, we'd go to the park every afternoon because you need to get the kids outside and um, you meet all the other parents with little kids. So you meet a lot of people and there's a lot more community and that's something that I always found um sadly missing in new zealand where everybody drives into their driveway gets out of their car in their driveway and get goes into their house and you don't know your neighbors there's no there's very little community and um i i, I think that's sad and i think that farmers market are great a great way for people in a local area to connect so it's it's always great to be part of that
0: Yeah, I agree with you on the community aspect because um, I grew up in like what we'd call like a gated community. In India, they're called Mm bugs. And um, yeah, everyone knows exactly what you're doing, how much bread you've bought, Mm -hmm. how much fish you bought. (laughs) Everyone knows that like I had. (laughs) I mean, it was great because when I was growing up, like we used to have vendors come to our door. um, And I remember my granny had, uh, I used to live with her. And we had this like little cane basket because we used to live on the third floor and the winder didn't want to climb all the way up. Yeah. So we had this basket. And so she would just shout down yeah. <laughs> and like do her deal. And then we'd like, I get to drop the basket down and yeah. the winder puts like whatever the eggs or the bread in and then you okay. just like roll it back up. Yeah. <laughs> and was, like the highlight of my day. Great. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and you never get to kind of do that. I mean, I've lived in my—we bought a house in December, and it's been like kind of eight or nine months, and I only just met my neighbors like last week. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: And I—I okay. I, I mean, I've—I've I've been in the same house for ten years now with my family, and I know my immediate neighbors. But like, mm. even two houses down on the other side, I, I don't—I don't ever speak with them. And mm. in, in um in Germany, it's a lot closer or at least in Berlin I I wouldn't say that everywhere in Germany but in Berlin where the the way we lived there that was you knew a lot more people and you knew other people from you know because everybody was walking you see them on the street it was a little bit like that you know during level four I found here that you met a lot more people because everybody was walking and suddenly you know you were having way more chats with your neighbors and because you saw them on the street the whole time but you know now everybody's driving again you don't
0: see anyone (laughs) So, I mean, one of the things I love is that your products don't like compromise on taste and taste the way that they should, you know. Um, So why is that so important when you're creating a brand and a business that will last
1: well, I, first and foremost, you know, I think when we eat, we want to eat something that tastes good. That's sort mm-hmm. of the first judgment that anyone passes on any kind of uh, food they put in their mouth does it taste good. And um, so, you know, I, I feel that's the first test that any product needs to pass. And um for me, you create great taste by using great ingredients and not compromising on um, the method. In, in, in the case of bread, you know, by not not using these quick fixes and premixes or dough conditioners or anything like that, but by taking slow fermented sourdoughs and turning them into great bread. And and the wonderful thing about bread is that there are so many different ways of making it. So you can, you know, you can make bread to all sorts of tastes. There's like, you know, we do, for example, a hundred percent wholemeal rye sourdough, which is, you know, lots of people call it a doorstop. You know, it's very heavy, um, kind of like a pumpernickel, very dark, very heavy, very malty sort of tasting. And, um, but you can also have like something very light and and fluffy, like a you know ciabatta or um, you know a, a baguette, which is fifty uh, percent air, and um, you know all just about the crust. And so there, there, there's there's so many different ways about bread, and I think that that's wonderful. And you can create them to the taste um, that you like, and you can create them for different. Um, I guess occasions as well, you know, where you, where you eat it in different ways. Yeah. Mm. But it, it's always it's always about the ingredients, and with bread, it's always about taking the time to make it properly.
0: Yeah. So you've been around for a while. What has it taken to scale your business? Like, is there some learnings that you can share since you've been around now for around ten years? Yes. Well, that's um, that's a bit of a thing,
1: eh? <laughs> <laughs> in hospitality, I guess. That, yeah, it is. It training, is a different thing. <laughs> mother, you almost feel like it or, anyway. Um, no, it, it does, It does. Uh, it's not easy. Um, hospitality is a ruthless business. Um, it's very competitive. Uh, anyone can sort of copy what you're doing. There's no, no you know, IP really. Um, and uh, I guess uh, for me, a big step was when I um, acquired some business partners um, who were in hospitality already and a lot longer than me. And that was a huge learning curve for me. And it it provided me with capital to grow the business. So that's when we started Bread and Butter about seven and a half years ago. Um and i learned a lot from them um it, that was really um very very valuable not just in terms of hospitality but also in terms of running larger staff having you know systems and um and processes and protocols in place to run larger staff and run larger production and you know turn over big numbers and uh using a lot of technology i'm I'm a great believer in um using you know uh, software and technology um, to make repetitive processes that any business has to go through as automated as possible so you don't spend um people time on something that computers can do much more easily Mm -hmm. um and um And yeah, being always on top of the numbers is something that is hugely important. I think that's something that a lot of people in hospitality... maybe just neglect initially um, because they get into it because they love food or they love people or they, you know, have a great eye for detail and can create beautiful environments and, and all of that. That's all important as well. But in the end, um, it's a business and a business needs to make money. And if you don't make money, you can't keep going, right? I mean, every business at the start doesn't make money and that's, everybody knows that. Um, but then after a while, you need to start making money. Otherwise, it's not a business it's a charity and and i think that's why a lot of businesses in hospitality don't survive they get into it with passion and um and then they fail on on those very crucial points of having to make money and then after two or three years the owners go oh god i'm you know i'm just losing money i can't keep doing this and then they get out of it
0: Yeah, I think like one of the things that took me by surprise is when I started my business, I always, uh, I mean, I did all the food costing and stuff, but you never kind of like account for just how much stuff would get wasted. Um, You know, like just like when you're cooking and like, oh, this got burnt or this got thrown away or, you know, it just got bad. And um, yeah, it's just important to stay on top of the numbers, like you said, because sometimes if you're not like a business person and you're mainly like a cook or mainly love being around food then it's easy to kind of just go and work in the business for a while to kind of get rid of that worry or fear and you know not kind of be doing the stuff you need to be actually doing
1: <laughs> yes and that that's not costing your food properly is one of the biggest challenges and you'd be surprised how many businesses of a reasonable scale um don't cost their food properly and um sometimes when i go to places and you know check out new cafes or um restaurants or something and you look at it and you go like jesus that that just can't be right like you know you you cannot seriously be only charging this much for a portion of that size you you're not making any money and um if i I guess because yeah, I've been doing this for so long, I've, I've got quite a good eye, especially for baked goods and cakes and pastries and, and and that because I know I just know what it costs, you know. And if I see a, a big piece of cake being sold for six dollars, I'm like either either the ingredients are absolute rubbish and it's just a premix, or they just haven't done their maths and they're not they're not actually making any money because yes, there's always wastage as well, and you know you have to calculate all of that into it. And if you don't, um, you're going to fail eventually.
0: Yeah. I know um, the first time I discovered pre-mixes, I was like <laughs> surprised because I didn't even know they existed. But yeah. na- then it kind of made sense. Like why when you go to a five-star or um, maybe I'm just generalizing against five-stars. But, you know, like sometimes um, like if you've had a brownie in New Zealand, all the brownies tend to just taste the same because I think they all just use <laughs> <love> the <laughs> pre-mix. Pre-mix, yeah. like, <laughs> Um And you can make it out. Like if you go from cafe to cafe, they all just taste exactly the same or pandora supplying to all of them i have no idea (laughs) either one (laughs) yeah um so nowadays there's been like a huge cry for you know eating local and sustainable agriculture and while we've spoken a little bit about the environmental concerns about why it's important to eat from a consumer perspective why it's important to eat what's grown locally and know where our food is coming from like I read your post for example on finally being able to source wheat flour from grains grown in New Zealand like why is that important that you know yeah well I I guess in the last
1: in the last century you know we've gone through this massive massive change in how we grow food um until um you know until the early 20th century um growing food was always done organically. And basically with the um, invention of synthetic fertilizer, um, we were able to grow a lot more food. And there's, there's, I mean, synthetic fertilizer um, is probably responsible uh, single-handedly for the explosion of the human population. Um, And, And, you know, I'm sure you are very aware of it because India is one of the countries, you know, that's that's sort of credited or, um, you know, where the Green Revolution uh, is credited with having saved so many people from starvation. Um, But... um, one thing that wasn't clear until well, it, it it became clear, but it's really becoming clear now, is um, the huge detrimental effect synthetic fertilizer has on soil. So when when synthetic fertilizer, which is um, you know ammonium, um, which plants need for growth, when that was first applied to the you know um, soil. Um, the very first time if you if you take kind of like a virgin soil that has never had synthetic fertilizer, um, you get this huge boost in plant growth um, but what happens over time if you keep applying synthetic fertilizer the plants that grow they need they will only take their nitrogen from the synthetic fertilizer and they will stop using their Natural food networks, which are mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria that live in the ground and that live in symbiosis with the plant. So normally the plant you know sends roots into the ground and it lives in this huge underground network of fungi and, and bacteria and small protozoa and insects and worms and all, all that whole cosmos of biology that lives in the soil. And um, they all, you know live together. And the plants are very crucial because through photosynthesis they produce um, sugars and they feed the sugars through their roots to the fungi and to the bacteria. So they and, and then the fungi and bacteria deliver back nutrients to the plants and they deliver water to the plants. And that's very, very important. But if you apply synthetic fertilizer, the plants just take the synthetic fertilizer becomes, because it comes in an easier form and they stop giving to the underground networks. Mm-hmm. And over time, those networks underground die, and the mycorrhizae disappear, and the bacteria disappear, and the water holding capacity of the soil goes away, and the roots. Root networks go away, and the soil becomes brittle and dry, and prone to leaching out. And uh, eventually, you get a big flood, and the whole soil just washes away. And Mm. also, because initially, when you apply the synthetic fertilizer, you um, you have an intact underground network, so the plant just gets an extra bit of boost, but. Over time, as that dies away, the plant gets nothing from the soil. It just—it's just, it's just a, a solid medium that the roots adhere to, but it gets no nutrients from it. So the plant actually, in itself, is very weak and very prone to disease. And and then the more chemicals you put on it, um, the worse it gets. And farmers nowadays—they're locked into these systems. It's really, really dangerous because the entire farming network that's the banks and the agrochemical companies that sell them that stuff that they really revolve around selling farmers as many chemicals as they can and um and farmers are hugely indebted to their banks and the banks are in you know telling them as well you need to do this you can't change it and um if you as a farmer if you consider Stepping out of the system and potentially going organic, you also um, potentially lose your friends and your neighbours um, because there's this kind of entrenched kind of us versus them, organics versus conventional farmers going on. Um, but really, we need to we need to recognise that throwing chemicals at everything is not the solution. We need to work with nature, and we need to really understand how nature works you know, independent of us throwing chemicals at it. We've been on this planet for, you know, or humans have been on this planet in in sort of the form we're in now for probably 200,000 years. But life on this planet is, you know, billions of years old. And it always evolved and grew in in relationships with each other and symbiosis with each other without any – synthetic chemicals being thrown on it. So we need to understand those networks better and use them to our advantage and use technology and science to find out how we can farm with nature without the use of all these chemicals, without using that as our answer to everything. That's my my opinion anyway. yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think that, I mean, that's perhaps also why when you buy your fruit and veg from like the farmer's market, it just tastes better yes. or like you know also when you like grow it in the garden it just yes. it tastes way better like i know the first because time i them. had tomatoes from my garden i was like oh my god <laughs> like
1: they well, taste because, so different because they're grown to, to ripe and that's actually one of the important things as well why and and it's also something that science is just sort of discovering now that you know especially for fruit and vegetables in the very last stage of ripening the chemical uh, chemical processes happening in the fruit and vegetables where you know, certain things get produced by the vegetable, by the fruit, that are very beneficial to us. Um, and if you don't go through that last stage of ripening, and a lot of the stuff that comes in the supermarket doesn't, it gets harvested weeks and sometimes months before you actually consume it. And then it just gets gassed or treated just before putting it on the supermarket shelf. It doesn't, so it looks ripe, but it doesn't, it doesn't, didn't actually go through that last process of ripening. So those um, chemical compounds that are actually very essential for your nutrition are missing. Um, And yeah, there's just, uh, uh, sorry, I didn't answer your question about the New Zealand wheat. Um, So in in New Zealand, New Zealand has always been a food exporter, right? Um, Mm -hmm. New Zealand was a colony to the British Empire and it was set up by uh, the British to supply the motherland, you know, so it, it was never, um, it, it was always sort of seen as an auxiliary, um, to, to the empire, and it had the job of providing the motherland with something, you know, initially, uh, well, yes. you know, wool and then uh, frozen meat, and um, now it's sort of diversified into dairy, apples, and kiwi fruit. But New Zealand produces. Um, very few um, different food crops, and produces them at a huge rate. I think I've read somewhere something like we we produce enough food for close to 60 million people in New
0: Zealand yeah yeah I've read that as well
1: (laughs) that's crazy you know um but that that's and that all gets exported um but there's only very few things that New Zealand actually produces so it's huge monocultures and monocultures are a problem because they just a plant um one one type of plant will always take the same type of nutrients out of the ground. And traditionally yeah. farmers used crop rotation by, you know, using five, six different crops that they grew and they rotated them out through the fields. But if you you're in the kiwi fruit business or in the dairy business, um, you're just doing that year after year after year after year on the same soil. You you're just gonna deplete the soil and eventually, um need to move on and i think it's probably i don't know it's it's hard for me to say because um you know i'm I'm a i'm an immigrant in this country as well and i don't want to point fingers but i feel it is a little bit of a continuation of the colonial think system of go out grab land you know grow something on it exploit it take the value from the land and then move on but Mm. We haven't quite realized that there's nowhere to move on to anymore, you know yeah. there's no new lands that we can just grab and exploit and use and and then throw away so um but we haven't really come out of this linear way of thinking, and I think um the whole world has a lot to learn to come to some form of more, you know, circular economy, circular thinking. And, and um, I think we have a huge opportunity in New Zealand to learn from Māori in the sense because um, indige- not just Māori but a lot of Indigenous communities have a lot more of a circular worldview, Um and I, I guess in in, in, Indi- in India as well, right, um, Hinduism or Buddhism both have very circular sort of worldviews of every, everything comes in repeating cycles. And um, I think the Western monotheistic worldview is a bit too linear um, and, and we've now sort of reached the outer edges of our planet and of our ecosystems and we have nowhere to go anymore. So we kind of have to – find out a way how we can continue existing on the same land. We can't just keep exploring and grabbing new land anymore because there's nothing left anymore to grab.
0: That's true. And I'm not going to space if there's no sourdough there. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: that's the other thing. I mean, that cracks me up. You know, like we're, we're, we're destroying a planet that supports life without us doing anything for it. You know, it just does it all on its own. And, and we managed to destroy it. And how do we think we're going to go into a planet that's completely inhospitable and create an entire <laughs> atmosphere ecosystem and everything from scratch when we can't even make it work in one that that just wants (laughs) to do it all on its own yeah that's true
0: (laughs) (laughs) so anyways coming back to stuff that we can resolve um what's next for like bread and butter where do you see yourself in the next kind of five years
1: well, I, as I said a few years ago, I m- met business partners and I learned a lot from them. But last year we split ways, um, mm-hmm. mainly because um, they were more interested in cafes and I was more interested in bread and bakery. Mm-hmm. So um, we 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 split in a very amicable way, and we're still, um, you know, a little bit attached uh, with each other, but but um, basically, I really want to focus on the bakery side, and I really want to bring good bread to more people. So I, um, I'm looking to, um, you know, find find a way how we can find more small shops more small shops in local communities, um, not not cafes, not full service, but just bakery and really mm. focus on that. And that's um, where I really see the future for Bread and Butter Bakery. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I'm working on and um, I guess we'll have to see what happens with COVID and uh, the consequences of that. Um, but I feel that um, people still need to eat um, and therefore – hopefully we'll be able to survive. But <laughs> hospitality is in, in a very, very, it's very dire straits at the moment. And um, because the bakery side of, of bread and butter, we do a lot of wholesale. So we supply, you know, restaurants and cafes and hotels and caterers. I can tell you it's tough out there. There's a lot of people who won't survive the next three to six months. Yes. Or who, who are already dead um and um and it's yeah it's tough to see that mm-hmm. and it's especially you know you 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 make friends in this industry mm-hmm. as well and you know how hard people work in this industry mm-hmm. and it's an industry that is hugely dependent on immigrants and I'm I'm really very I'm very upset about the fact that nobody really talks about that. And Immigration New Zealand is a very tough um, partner to deal with um, if you're from the outside. And I feel that, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's not easy to work in hospitality and it's not that hospitality owners don't want to employ New Zealanders. It's just New Zealanders don't really want to work in hospitality. It's not. That's
0: so true. I just read the article the other day. It was about, I guess it was more about primary industries and farmers, but they were saying the same thing. Same. um, Yep. You know, they don't – I mean, no one wants to actually work in these industries, and um, yet we won't kind of support the people that are coming in and wanting to work here. No, it's terrible. I guess,
1: you know, it's it's probably a feature of the very good New Zealand education system. You know, the the New Zealand schools are excellent, and the education system works really well so that the kids that go through the New Zealand education system – they, they see themselves as having a good chance at some, you know, high-quality jobs, and so they go for those. so But the, the problem is especially around food, you know, you, you, you need people to make food, you, and, and somebody needs to do that. And I feel um, that, you know, in, the, in a world that's so global and so interconnected and, you know, for many people from, you know, poorer countries, it's – It's such a wonderful chance to be able to come to New Zealand, and they, they, you know, they want to work in food. They want to work in this industry. They're grateful. They're happy. They know they can, um, you know, bring their kids up in this great country. And it's despite the hard work, I find working in food is extremely satisfying. I mean, I've, you know, I've worked as a scientist. I've worked as a journalist and, and science journalist. And one thing I found about working with food is it it makes people happy. And that is so gratifying when you, when you make something and somebody eats it and they have a massive big smile on their face. So, you know, I've had people come to me and say, I am so thankful that you make this organic bread because now I can eat bread again. I couldn't eat this other stuff. And I thought I could never eat bread again. And now I can. And that's so wonderful. And, you know, they've, they've, I've gotten hugs for that. And yeah. and that's just amazing. I never got that as a as a scientist or as a gentlemanist, <laughs> you know no, Nobody ever My God, No one cares. <laughs> no one cares. You can be glad if you get the check at the end of it. <laughs> okay. and so you know, and I think that that is something that um We need to remember how how gratifying it is to work in this industry and how how wonderful it is. It's not just about earning the big bucks, you know. It's about making people happy, about working in something that makes sense, about working with your hands. It's really wonderful to actually do something with your hands. I think, you know, that's what we're made to do. That's what we've evolved doing. It is something that connects with us deep within, and and that's um, something that I feel should maybe be – Put to kids in school because not everybody is an academic, you know. Not everybody is 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 an intellectual who who. Not everybody enjoys that kind of stuff, so kids should be given all these, you know, options, and it should be presented to them as something that is worthwhile pursuing.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean, while we're on the subject, to be on to be fair, New Zealand is. The- hospitality industry like yes there's long hours and things like that but if you compare it to like India or Mumbai or (laughs) some of the bigger cities we're like the most hospitable hospitality (laughs) industry there is (laughs) if that is you know if that makes Like, I mean, still kind of cafe owners can still pack up by about six o'clock and, like, you know, they still have a life. Like, well, in India there's no such thing. No, in in, India it's all
1: night long, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and that's what I always say about New Zealand. New Zealand is such a privileged country where I just so, you know, the weather is benign there's beautiful nature everywhere that anybody can go to and enjoy for free um there's space and clean air and you know everybody can have live in a house with a garden we've got wonderful schools um we've got great hospitality well at least here in Auckland you know there's so much choice Uh, there's arts and culture and we we're just so privileged and um I I feel that, you know, you don't need huge amounts of money in New Zealand to be happy. There's so many things you can be happy about without having to have huge amounts of money. That's not to say that, you know, the cost of living in New Zealand isn't high. It's very, it is very high. Um, but um, it, it's... Yes. I, I, yeah, I, th- I, think I think there's, there's a lot there.
0: to do. There's a lot to do which you can do without money. Yeah, as well, you know, yeah. like there's parks and you can go out for picnics and there's just yeah a lot you can to do rather bank. than just kind of like go to the mall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is what you can do in a deal yeah. in some of the biggest cities. <laughs> yes. Okay. So moving on to my favorite part of the show. Um, it's called the fast food five, and okay, um, okay. that's five fast questions about food. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so one meal you make in your house on a weekly basis, mm. or you know, it's kind of like on your regular roster of meals. Well, my
1: son and my sons and I, we really eat pretty much porridge. Super, we call it super porridge every morning. I soak oats overnight. I add chia seeds. We do fresh fruit with it, and then dry fruit and toasted nuts, and that's what we eat for breakfast. That's mm. very like pretty much every school day
0: okay yeah my my kids eat oats every day I'm so thankful <laughs> I just love it's, it. it it's great it's cheap it's easy it's so nutritious
1: it's one of yeah. the you know it's one of the. And, and it's so especially in winter I can't you know I'm like oh yeah nice warm, warm oats for breakfast it's so wholesome yep
0: mm. okay butter or jam your bread topping of choice oh butter absolutely yes nothing like good butter right butter is another one of those things like bread it's just nowadays the store-bought stuff just tastes crap but if you like make butter at home yeah mm -hmm.
1: yeah well that's why my bakery is called bread and butter right
0: yeah. <laughs> you know, when I used to come home from school, my um, house, we had like a lady who used to come make fresh rotis for us. Yeah. And she would always come at around four, four ish. So just when I was back from school. Yeah. And she'd make me like fresh rotis. And then you put like butter on it and then you sprinkle some sugar. Yeah. And then it's just like, and I'd have like four or five <laughs> of <so>. those. <laughs> So much for no carbs. Yep. Anyway.
1: <laughs> no, same for me. I, like my mom, um used to say, she used to put so much butter on her bread that she used to say, if you still can see the bread, you don't have enough butter on it. So, you know, you need to, you need to put the butter so thick that you can't see the bread anymore. I try and stick to that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. If you had to describe yourself as an item of food, which one would you be? Oh, my God. So, I've made this question easier. Previously, it used to be just a vegetable. So, now you've got like whole lots of ingredients to choose from. Can I say bread?
1: I <laughs> <laughs> I like to think, you know, I, I, I like to think about things. So I liken that to the fermentation process. I like to ferment on things. And, yeah, I think good things take time. You know, you get better with age um, and get more clear in your thought processes. And, um,
0: and it's an everyday thing. So, yeah, um, I go with bread. Cool. Um, one thing that you must always have in your pantry. Onions. Oh yes, I love onions.
1: I don't. I, I, I find like cooking savory <laughs> dinner meals without onions is there's something definitely missing.
0: Mm. I often like just. I was talking to another guest, and uh, she's Indian as well. So even like before I've even decided what I'm gonna cook, I'll often just like grab a couple of onions and like start chopping them because yeah. like, <laughs> I can't eat them. So you're gonna eat them anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Last question. Um, like a secret ingredient or tip that you can share with our listeners to make great bread at home? Mm. Well, like I said before, it's, it, I, I
1: would get a notebook and a thermometer and the most important thing, scales. I hate imperial system. It's just uh, the volume metric stuff when it's cups and spoons and drives me nuts. So one thing that I always do with whenever I get a recipe from anywhere is I convert it to grams and metric system because that's that's the easiest way to do it. And if you're really serious about cooking, especially about baking, um, I would recommend that you know do do it once, get your grams right, and then you 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 away. You're much more likely to be successful, especially in bread baking, if you work with scales mm. so not so much an ingredient more of a technical thing i guess but for yeah. for bread for bread baking in particular in terms of ingredients i would really recommend using organic flours, especially when you're working with sourdough because um conventional flours are uh, wheat is grown with a lot of chemicals and particularly it gets um sprayed with roundup just before harvesting and um, that ends up in the flour, and and that is actually very detrimental to um, bacteria and then also bread bread flour gets bleached um, so they actually add bleach to it um, which is also detrimental to the growth of bacteria so it's going to inhibit your sourdough so use organic because that's there's no chemicals
0: in there. Oh, that's that's a really good tip I'll keep that in mind next time I'm getting some of my flour. So thank you so much Isabel for coming on the show and it's been a pleasure talking to you and all I really want to do now is go have some (laughs) bread and butter. (laughs) (laughs) Do that. (laughs) All right, take care. Okay, thank you so much. Listening to the Kiwi Foodcast, brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Be sure to listen in next time for another helping of Kiwi Food Stories.